Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I had a relaxing summer in mind after such a stressful spring. Didn't work out that way. That's okay. I really enjoy this work, but we are working hard for you, and I'm asking you for your support, and we're going to give you ad-free podcasts in exchange and our undying gratitude. It's really easy. Click on the link in the show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join, and uh, you'll be a Canadaland supporter, and you'll get a premium podcast feed. Go do it. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, for the first time, faced questions in the House of Commons about his connections to the WE charity, the organization with close ties to his family that would have been paid tens of millions of dollars for a government contract. I should have recused myself because of the connection with the families, but that doesn't, my family, but that doesn't take away from the fact that the public service recommended that organization. A global news investigation found Ottawa has announced millions of dollars for WE Charity, dating back to the Stephen Harper years. But since the Trudeau Liberals took power in 2015, the amount doubled to at least five and a half million dollars, according to spending reports. Stunning revelations as Finance Minister Bill Morneau admits to taking WE Charity trips to Kenya and Ecuador, trips that he didn't fully pay for until now. You didn't know about a $41,000 expense? How is that even possible? My first guest, who knows the WE charity from the inside. He worked there for several years. I started to see um, personally WE charity as being um, less the organization than I thought it was and much more an organization kind of serving as a vessel for, for corporate and individual interests. Certain high net worth individuals, it seemed to me that, that those interests had taken over. Today, Craig Kielberger and his older brother Mark will appear before a House of Commons committee investigating the awarding of a contract worth tens of millions of dollars to we. I acknowledge that the fallout now from this political process has resulted in serious challenges that risk the entire organization in our 25 years. We regret that we didn't recognize how this decision would be perceived. Well, we haven't seen this in almost 14 years. Today, a sitting prime minister will testify before the House of Commons Finance Committee. My concern around recusing myself was a question around 
perceptions. Uh, floor is yours, uh, Mr. Brown. What's this all about? Maybe nothing. You know, if, if the point here is that the prime minister and the finance minister did something wrong, they did. They've apologized for it. Yes, they should have recused themselves. Maybe Justin Trudeau or his cabinet or, or the public service, maybe somebody should have asked more questions about we. And, you know, maybe if we're being real, maybe the fact that the we organization had all these relationships with the Morneaus and the Trudeaus, you know, maybe that did have something to do with the fact that they got this contract. But you know what? Hey, those were great relationships. The Kilbergers were a relationship a lot of people wanted to have. They were your friends who everybody loved, who helped and inspired kids, who built an impressive global operation. I mean, why not give guys like that the job? Nobody knew all this stuff about them back then. At the time, everybody agreed that they were great guys with a great organization. You know, conservatives thought that too. So can Justin come back from the principal's office already? I mean, we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic here. But what is this all about? Maybe it's about a lot more. We let this charity into our schools. We gave them access to our kids. We weren't in the room when that happened. I mean, you take a kid and you tell them that there are children just like them who are slaves in Pakistan. Kids who are just like them starving in Africa. But right here, right here in their own classroom or auditorium, right here in this stadium, they have the power to feed those kids overseas, that they have the power to educate them, to vaccinate them, that they have the power to change the world. And you don't just tell them that, you preach it to them. You get their favorite pop star to sing it to them. You inspire them and you get them to raise money through 7,000 schools. And that's been happening for decades. Here's what the kids probably don't know. They may think that they're raising money for kids in poor countries. But the WE organization expanded its mandate and its mission years ago. Their explicit goal is also to, quote, inspire and empower youth at home. So when kids in Canada get inspired by WE to go raise money, some of that money is used to inspire kids in Canada. Some of it gets spent on WE days. I mean, a goal of WE day is WE day. So our kids in Canada, when they're doing charity work, do they know that they are among the intended beneficiaries of their own charity work? What else are they? They're a product. Their attention was sold by the WE organization to its partners. You know, WE says that they have a halo with kids. That's how they put it. Their organization has a halo, the things that angels have. And companies that stand next to WE enjoy the halo effect reflected virtue. The WE organization told Walgreens that Walgreens is now 1.6 times cooler to kids because they partnered up with WE. Microsoft became 2.6 times more relatable and Allstate Insurance was 3.5 times more trusted by children. The WE organization sold these companies access to our kids. It sold them our kids' attention, you know, but what it really sold them was our kids' feelings and their ability to manipulate those feelings. Did the WE organization sell politicians access to our kids? No. No, that's something that WE gave away for free. And they did so selectively. Most politicians were not invited onto their stage. Some who asked for access were told no. But there were some, and no politician more so than our prime minister, who were allowed again and again and this is not something that Justin Trudeau paid for. The money actually flowed in the other direction. From the WE organization to Trudeau family members, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and almost all of it getting paid only after he became the prime minister. But that money, hundreds of thousands of dollars paid to the Trudeau family, that's nothing compared to the millions of dollars that the Trudeau government flowed back to WE, even before this youth volunteer grant mess. Do not call that a return on investment. Don't suggest that this was quid pro quo. 
I mean, you're not going to find a smoking gun. There's no contract that says, pay my mom's speaking fees and I'll give you a half billion dollars to manage. That's not how it worked. That's not how it worked when companies got access to politicians at We Day events, kind of a bonus for giving money to the charity. Some networking with members of parliament that you're probably not going to register as like official lobbying events, really. It's just something that supporters of charity get to do with one another. You know, that's not how it worked when Bill Morneau gave the WE organization personal donations and then a $3 million government grant. And then WE reportedly pressured its employees to go to Bill Morneau's Christmas party. This was not a formal transaction. It's just how things worked. It was all for charity. A charity that spent more money last year on its charitable activities in Canada, appealing to kids in Canada and in the U.S., than it did on international development actual dollars spent in countries like Kenya, India, and Ecuador. And that, all of that, is what it's all really about. All of that action, with our kids at the core of it. And you know what? Some people still don't care. I met one of them, a mom, about a year and a half ago. She was appalled by our coverage of WE. I had a coffee with her to talk about it. And she told me that ultimately it didn't matter to her whether or not kids overseas were actually benefiting from WE Charity. What mattered to her was how much her kids here in Toronto had gotten out of it, how good they felt about themselves for their charity work, how empowered they feel through their experience with WE. If only I could see that I would know that this is a great charity. She was in tears as she told me this. You know what? I I don't know what this will ultimately be about. Is it all a big nothing? Is it another blackface scandal or Aga Khan vacation for our prime minister to walk away from? Or is it everything? Is, Is it everything about how Canadians see ourselves in the world and whether or not that conception works for anyone but us? Is it everything or is it nothing? I don't get to make that decision. Our job right now is to tell it to you, all of it. And the next thing I'm going to tell you about today is how some of that charity money was spent right here in North America. Over a year ago, I reported about a slew of bizarre things that had been happening to Canada land. There had been a denial of service attack on our website, temporarily knocking us off the internet. Couldn't read any of our stuff for a while. There was a Twitter bot campaign, fake critics of Canada land with phony accounts criticizing our coverage of We Charity. There was a former Canadian journalist who bought ads on Twitter week after week, also to attack our We coverage. And then there were these weird editorials. One ran in the Toronto Sun, but the rest ran in right-wing U.S. publications. Many of them were written by different Republican strategists which attacked Canada Land as fake news because of our coverage of We Charity. That was weird. And so we dug into those op-eds and were able to expose the fact that at least one of them was directly linked to a Republican strategy firm in Idaho, of all places. We were not able to determine who hired that firm. Well, there is a new development in that story. Last week, the Globe and Mail reported that in 2019, We Charity U.S., paid $130,000 to Firehouse Strategies, a firm founded by three political operatives who worked on Marco Rubio's 2016 presidential campaign. The firm specializes in targeted persuasion campaigns, and they curate authentic content from media sources and influencers. The Globe and Mail linked Firehouse Strategies to some of the same guys who had written those anti-Canada land articles. Also last week, the National Post reported on something that I had no idea about. In 2018 and 2019, somebody hired at least 180 workers to manipulate Google's search results to push up positive stories about We Charity and about Craig Kilberger, which had the effect of pushing down and burying Canada Land's investigative reporting on We Charity. These PR methods are called black ops tactics. They're called disinformation campaigns. They require secrecy. They require deception. They are considered unethical. 
They violate the terms of service of Google and other websites, and they're often used by criminals to hide public records of their crimes. They are also often used in politics to smear political opponents. And they are exactly the kind of stuff my first guest today is an expert in. Later on this show today, I'm going to explore the bottom line question about We Charity. All of this reporting from us and others, should they have registered as lobbyists or not? What's up with their real estate? Most of all, how they handled all of that charity money. What, what, what is all of that reporting ultimately going to come down to? And let me be clear, we do not have an answer for this just yet, but what happens if they broke the law? I'm going to talk to a charity lawyer about that. But before I do that, first, I'm going to speak to the media editor of BuzzFeed News, a person who is a global expert in misinformation and disinformation, and God help him, he is the guy who coined the term fake news. Craig Silverman joins me from Toronto in a moment. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Tucker McLaughlin, Deborah D. Jackson, Allison Wyke, Oren Gobin, Andrew Codrington, Eric Boss, Alex Esser, and Dave. My name is Dave, and I'm a theater maker and graduate student in Toronto. I support Canada Land because it answers the questions I have about what's happening in my city and my country right now, and because programs like Thunder Bay have taught me a lot about the places I came from. Congratulations to the Canada Land staff on unionizing with CWA Canada and keep on sticking it to the man, even if sometimes the man is Jesse. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Craig, you were responding today to a scoop in the National Post. Chris Nardi had a story that was news to me. And the story was that at least 180 workers were paid to manipulate Google's search algorithm to promote positive stories on we and Craig Kilberger in 2018, 2019, but we don't know who hired these people to do it. And uh, it's a strange, even, even using the term hired, as you read through the story, in two different micro job offers posted to microworkers.com, an anonymous employer offered on these two occasions to pay at least 90 different workers between 15 cents and 18 cents to try to manipulate Google search results in Wee's favor. Can you tell us what you had to say about that? Yeah, I, I mean, my reaction is that this is this is really classic kind of black hat 
search engine manipulation stuff. And and this is skeezy. It's a seedy kind of way of going about getting a specific kind of result elevated in the search results for particular kinds of search terms. And and the broader context of this is that there is an entire industry out there of, you know, some credible and then many extremely not credible uh, reputation management and search engine optimization folks. And you can hire them to do a wide variety of stuff. And this particular thing is completely not allowed by Google. So this is really on the end of completely unethical search engine manipulation. And it's not like it's uncommon, it's done, but the idea that this was being done for a charity and for you know the co-founder of a charity was surprising to me. Let me try to understand technically exactly how this tactic works. Why would anyone take a job for 18 cents? Yeah. I mean, this is the, it's the kind of collision of two things here. One is trying to make your Google results as favorable as possible. And then the other is using this world of, of so-called micro workers to make it happen. So there are sites like this out there where people from different places around the world, um, you know, often people in developing countries where they will do jobs, very specific, menial, repetitive kinds of jobs for very small amounts of money. And the idea is that you know, if the, a job like this, for example, where they do a specific kind of search, where they click on a specific link, they spend a certain amount of time on the page, uh, you know, this is something that will pay them a small amount of money, but they're trying to do them in volume. So a task that may take them a couple of minutes to do, they'll spend hours and hours racking those up to the point where they try to make a decent hourly rage, wage. So it's, you know, micro workers doing small tasks in high volume to try and earn a semblance of income. If I understand these people correctly, they were acting like they were normal people just searching for We Charity, and then they'd get search results, and they would click on a story that might have been the like a low-ranking search result, but that would tell Google that that was a valuable search result, and that would push that search result up to the top. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, the goal here was to elevate specific, very positive coverage of Craig Kilberger and of We. And to do that by mimicking the behavior of real humans of like that would that would search for, you know, basic keywords about him or the organization. And then, as you said, um, they were told to uh, to click on a very specific article or different articles so that those articles would elevate more in relation to those keywords. But here's one of the things about this particular campaign which is, you know, as far as the reporting says, it was done about 180 times, the, or at least 180, you know, people were paid to do this. I mean, the idea that this, these 180 clicks would actually meaningfully influence the Google search results about Craig Kielberger, who's been in the media and covered for decades, and his organization, which also has huge amounts of coverage, is, I mean, there's, I just can't imagine this working. And so on one level, yes, it's completely unethical. It's very nefarious. But on the other, it's actually a really dumb strategy that I can't imagine working. And so it seems like someone's, I don't know, throwing spaghetti against the wall and just trying to make sure they're covering lots of different faces in order to make sure uh, that, you know, this particular person, this organization is getting good, you know, positive results on Google. I guess that, that that is a central question that I've had since all of these strange things started happening around our coverage of We Charity. I I, I can obsess about this stuff because it's about us. We is not answering questions about this. So again, that campaign with the clicks, uh, we don't know who hired them. And then there's the separate campaign, which you and I have spoken about in the past and, and Canada Land has reported on, where all of these Republican-connected online news sources in weird places, like just parts of America where Canada Land has no presence at all, and like a website for lawyers in Texas, and then the Washington Times, not to be confused with the Washington Post, just places where you couldn't imagine anyone would care about Canada Land, op-eds about the scourge of fake news around the world. And then in like paragraph three or four, they would say, even in Canada, there's this Canada Land that, and they wouldn't say we charity, but a few of them would allude to it. Right. You know, they've discredited themselves and, and revealed themselves to be fake news through the reporting uh, of Jaron Kerr about a nonprofit. And I, I was like, well, this is weird. Something is up. Um, but do I care? And then we were able to actually, like, trace this back to a strategy firm. Uh, there was obviously coordination between these op-eds. 
but part of me was like, how much time do I want to devote to this? Like, they're not really hurting us, but are they? Because I think that maybe I was looking at things in a, in a, in maybe an old media direct way of like, my audience doesn't read these publications and this isn't doing me any reputational damage. So what do I care? But you've done like reverse engineering of campaigns that are similar to this. And, and the goal may have been different than the one that I had in mind. Yeah, I mean, your your reaction is sort of the human reaction of, well, how many people who might, you know, who might know about us will actually read this and have this shape their view of us. But there's also the kind of the, you know, the robots or the algorithmic view of this campaign. So they had, you know, multiple op-eds placed in some sort of more obscure sites. But, you know, you mentioned the Washington Times. Washington Times probably ranks fairly well uh, in Google to a certain extent. And, and they also placed some, I think, in, in Canadian publications, uh, who also probably ranked pretty well. And so over time, if you have these multiple kinds of op-eds that are mentioning Canada land in the context of fake news, in a negative context, then over time, that may actually, those articles may actually start to move up in the results of someone searching about Canada land or about Jesse Brown. And the thing, one of the things you mentioned, I think, is, is kind of interesting and key about it is that... These op-eds, they refer to Candleland's coverage of we as kind of being an example of fake news, but they don't actually cite we. Mm-hmm. And in Why is any that important? Nor- I mean, it's important because in these kinds of scenarios, you have a choice to make of, you know, if, if the goal of these op-eds was to discredit Candleland's p- reporting of we, then not mentioning we seems really strange from a human perspective. It's like, why wouldn't you actually say the thing they supposedly did fake news about? But if you're thinking from a search engine perspective, if you want to sort of ding Canada Lamb, but don't want it to actually potentially accidentally hurt Wee's credibility, then you might want to leave we out of the actual article. And so I thought that was really interesting at the time. And I still think it's notable that these articles, which were clearly coordinated placements, which I think were clearly meant to damage Candleland's reputation and their search results about Candleland, you know, went right up to the line, but kept we out of it. And I think that that's, that's interesting. And in these campaigns, you know, the ones I've reported on, these kinds of tactics are usually used by people who are, you know, criminals. In the examples I've reported on, we're talking about like major fraudsters who wanted to scrub their search results so they paid reputation consultants to actually place a whole bunch of articles using their name, but actually creating fake personas of them. So that, you know, if my name was Adrian Smith and I've been arrested for fraud, suddenly there's five Adrian Smiths who are all from the same place as me, but do different things. And they've just been, you know, creating tons of social profiles and generating tons of content to make sure that they're the Adrian Smiths on the first page of Google results, and I'm further down with my fraud charges. And so these tactics, are they are reasonably widespread. But again, I think it's really surprising to see the coordinated op-eds, um, the microtask. And one thing that we haven't talked about yet is the fact that apparently on some of Wee's Wikipedia pages, they've got a, a flag on them now because of suspected kind of you know manipulation of the content on them. Those are three examples that seem to be related to we in some way, we don't know in most of them, you know, exactly what we did or didn't do, but are there to kind of manipulate the online results and reputation of the organization and its key people. And it's really surprising to see a prominent charity seemingly benefiting from this stuff. I want to return to that and to the Wikipedia thing. But first, it's interesting because you you, you basically have described two different kind of discrete campaigns. One is to push positive Craig Kilberger and we search results up, thus burying Canada land story. And we know that like, if you're on page two of Google search results, you're not going to be seen by like, I don't know, over 80% of the people searching for that thing. Then you've got another campaign and to hear you explain it, I was looking at it all wrong thinking, well, that's not a very good op-ed and no one's really going to care about that. Like humans aren't going to think less of us because of that. And, and the humans who I care about aren't even going to read it. But it wasn't written for humans. It, it, it was written for an algorithm. It was written so that Canada Land is associated with the word fake news. It, 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 this is essentially going to push Canada Land's negative results up. And they don't want we mentioned there because they're trying to, uh, I guess, blur or remove that association. Independent of our coverage of them, the idea is uh, for whoever was doing this that Canada Land should get a bad name 
in terms of how Google ranks it, if I have those two things right. Yeah, you know, a successful kind of dirty trick search campaign, you'd probably want to do two things. One is you'd want to hurt the results of your target. Um, You'd want to make sure that when someone searches their name, um, the worst possible stuff comes up about them, which would color their view of them. But also you want to burnish your reputation. And so I do think there's like a two part thing going on here, which is one, you know, mess with the results of Candleland hurt its name. And also, frankly, I mean, I think from the human perspective, having those op-eds, like uh, you guys revealed that an executive at We actually sent out the link to one of those op-eds to a lot of its, you know, supporters and others saying, see, you can't trust these Candleland guys. So it's still useful from that sort of proof point of view, but also in hurting Candleland's reputation when people go searching for it, it's valuable. Okay, well, you bring up something which is uh, that we reported earlier that we were looking for. I mean, obviously, uh, our, our, we wanted to investigate the editorial hypothesis that we was paying for this stuff, and we were looking for connections between these campaigns and We Charity. And you and you allude to a, a, you know one of the connections we found earlier, which is that a We executive was sharing these links. But of course, that's not really proof because the fact that they're sharing that with each other doesn't mean that they're responsible for it. It's gone beyond that now. You know, the the, the links are, are getting clearer. You bring up Wikipedia. If I look on Craig Kilberger's page, the specific warning that Wikipedia provides is this article may have been created or edited in return for undisclosed payments. Uh, we do not have confirmation that we made those payments, but we do know that we uh, has, has told the media that their employees do manipulate um, the Wikipedia pages of the organization Craig Kilberger. But the biggest thing, of course, uh, the Globe and Mail reported, and that is that uh, there, in fact, was a Republican-connected, dirty tricks, black ops, call it what you will, political PR strategy firm called Firehouse Strategies that was paid by We US, the We Charity, not not any of their for-profit businesses, their American charity, paid $130,000 US to this uh, Firehouse Strategies. And uh, I wanted to know more about Firehouse Strategies and the founders were good enough to appear on a podcast to talk about the kind of work that they do. Can I play you a little bit of that? Yeah. So you can't starve the beast. You know, we saw this and we learned the hard way on the Rubio campaign is we said, look, we're not going to talk uh, process because never a presidential campaign never wins when they're talking process. And by that, we meant like where we're at in the polls and here's our strategy and how many people we have here, this, or, like we're going to talk about important things that voters care about, like policies or this or that. Dear God, how often did Donald Trump just call into Morning Joe and talk about his poll numbers for oh, thirty minutes straight? Right, but that and was you know the, unex- the great unexpected. Right, but 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 it, but the point is is that he, what he taught us is that look, stop trying to force feed the the beast, the media in this case, vegetables. Give them cotton candy every day if they want it, and give them tons of cotton candy as long as they're willing to eat it. And sometimes that really is the solution is that if you've got a bad story that comes out, don't try to like hide from it. Try to get 18 good stories out. You're never going to fix the one bad story. Move on. Don't go back to that reporter and argue with them and this. And look, let's go get 18 other stories in another place and push it. Or conversely, let's figure out who the opponent is in this case. And let's just go get 18 bad stories about them. Stop. Our belief is in, in, Modern communications, you either throw spears or you catch spears. Catching them is no fun. (laughs) What do you make of that? Oh, the beast, the spears. Uh, I mean, look, this is... This is very much the kind of uh, political content warfare that you see uh, in the US, but also elsewhere to a certain extent. It's not just about answering the questions and answering the criticism. It's about, you know, making sure that the people exposing difficult uncomfortable truths are going to pay a certain price for it. And it's about making sure that as much as possible, you control and feed out positive stuff for you. And I think there are some obvious parallels to what Canada land has gone through. And also, if we look at the micro tasks, uh, pushing up, uh, we and the Wikipedia labels, um, there seems to be some of the, the positive puffery as well. Listening to the podcast, they really lay out who they are and what they're there to do. And what they say is, we're from the world of politics. Donald Trump completely rewrote everything. We know his tactics. We know his strategies. And we've left politics. We're offering those tactics and strategies 
to corporations who pay their bills more reliably than political candidates, they say. And we're really focused on nonprofits. And they go on to say, like, a lot of clients want you to plant a story in the New York Times. Well, sometimes it makes more sense to plant stories in regional hometown papers. They, they, he literally they, says that? He, he says that. Uh, and he, he says, sometimes what you want to do is, uh, rather than, you know, going out and putting out the story yourself, find someone who has credibility on an issue within a certain community. Uh, and it was almost like I was just listening to somebody lay out the strategy for the myriad of bizarre, dirty tricks, Twitter bots, uh, people from our journalistic community who suddenly became obsessively focused with denigrating Canada land, one in particular. What we're lacking is they, they, we know that we hired these guys and yeah. they, uh, you know, we will not tell us what they hired them to do. Firehouse themselves say that they were just helping we with regional we days, which I mean, that could mean anything. What you brought up earlier is that the players in this on both sides are not your expected players, right? Like you don't expect this to be done on behalf of a charity and you don't expect it to be done to journalists or, or, or do you, is this new? Is this weird? Well, I, I think in the era of Trump, uh, journalists as, as being really targeted and frankly, being useful as targets is something that those of us who you know live blissfully unaware of a lot of that in the West are suddenly uh, facing up that this is a, this is a tactic that is certainly done, and and I think there's more comfort in terms of politicians and others uh, to really decide to to hammer journalists as part of their response. But I do think, however, if you look at the history of we, they have always been pretty aggressive in the way they have dealt with anything remotely critical of them. Uh, and so on the one hand, it, it is surprising that a charity goes and hires a firm that has these kinds of tactics. Um, it's surprising that a charity would benefit from manipulation of Wikipedia and benefit from these micro task things that were put out there. Uh, but we has always been very aggressive in how it dealt with the media. Um, it, it sends a, a libel lawyer to respond to, you know, normal kinds of media requests. It uh, panics when a journalist who's at one of its events tweets something remotely negative and wants to make sure that they can get to her um, and, in fact, go to her editors about it. So uh, on that level, you know, some of this stuff seems to align with an approach that they have had. But, uh, you know, as you've mentioned, the tactics around the search stuff is, you know, is very considered what's called black hat and, you know, breaks Google's rules and can, can get you penalized if Google's able to attribute it to you. How, how outraged, like, does it make sense to be here? Like, on the one hand, I don't want to, like, overplay this. Like, I don't feel threatened by these things. I feel like some of it does have the saturation point. If you read enough of it, it does start to just make you like, you know, ah, you know, maybe those stories aren't so credible. And and when I say that, it's it's not out of a poor me place. It's it's out of a realization that like, if we're trying to just report on an organization that's just you know it dwarfs ours and they have like you know, really limitless resources and 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 rather than deal with it on the level of giving us the interviews directly. If, if Craig or Mark Kilberger sat down with us and, and just hashed through all the things that we were concerned about, but instead hiring the world's experts in misinformation, if, if that enters our information ecosystem in Canada, that feels to me like an assault on like civil society in Canada, civil discourse. Certainly it seems like it's an assault on journalists and their ability to practice journalism. I mean, you know, in looking at the uh, like the search manipulation stuff, uh, it's it's a lot more common outside of Canada, uh, and and I think our politics have not been really infected by the Trumpism and the sort of you know authoritarianism that we're seeing in other countries around the world. And I I agree with you in the sense that if these kinds of tactics became the norm, not just for the media, um, but for targeting you know other people who are speaking up and you know uh, in civil society. That would that would lead that leads to deterioration of your democratic norms, and that it seemed like an abstract thing, you know, five years ago to say that, but I think we now see what the the problem of that is in society. At the same time, I mean, we're journalists. In this case, it's targeting you specifically. We take personal offense 
when people want to completely delegitimize legitimate reporting. But we already have some of the, you know, oppo research and uh, and some dirtyish tactics in Canada uh, politically. So we shouldn't pretend like we're completely clean all the time, right? Yeah, you know, I just realized as I'm talking to you here, I've been looking at this like we've uh, we've you know finally gotten to some level of truth in in reverse engineering these these campaigns. Is that naive of me as well? Like, how do I know that this is over? Well, um, I, I do think that the fact that some of the payments and who the payments went to have come to light, we is probably not going to continue putting money into these these kinds of consultants, I would think, because it's going to come out somehow. And I suspect that, you know, they have to rethink this very aggressive pose that they've taken because they're not the, you know, global, widely beloved charity right now, they are in the midst of a real crisis that could completely end the organization. That being said, they've been fighters the whole time. I mean, a lot of these campaigns at times, uh, they will use, you know, fake social media accounts, or they will pay social media influencers to share stuff out. Because again, that can actually add uh, authority in terms of search results and other things to the content you're producing. It's not necessarily over. But I think the fact that some of this stuff is coming out and the people that we would have to know that it's something that upsets journalists <laughs> to see them trying to manipulate the media uh, is pr- it may not, maybe not worth it anymore. Uh, so, I, yeah, I mean, I feel like I'd be surprised if, if there were new things that started now. But it's entirely possible that there are other things that remained under the radar uh, that may only come out in the future. And one of the takeaways is to realize there's the sort of trying to influence people part of it, but then there's also the other level of influencing the systems that really determine who sees what in our world. And Google for search is, you know, the king of that. So these campaigns are about humans and they're also about the systems and making sure that the humans see the information you want via the systems that they use to get the information in their lives. So the fact that the Global Mail and others and, you know, the National Post publishing its story about the search manipulation, the fact that they are digging into these what would normally be kind of insidery media stories shows that I think the tipping point has happened and that every piece of conduct that we has engaged in is now worth scrutiny. And these kinds of what might be considered obscure stories otherwise are now getting a wide audience in national newspapers. Um, and, and those are the kinds of things that, you know, if you're paying people to manipulate search results, you're going to have to spend a lot more money to actually suppress that stuff now. And, and that's just not going to be possible. Craig Silverman, thank you. Thanks. Okay, let's shift our focus from what happened to Canada land to what might happen to the WE organization. In other words, let's go from me to WE. I'm very sorry. Let's do that because I think people want to know what is the bottom line here. If it turns out that WE Charity did break the rules, if it turns out that the WE organization broke the law, what could happen to them? I'm joined now by charity lawyer Mark Bloomberg of Bloomberg Siegel Law in Toronto. Hi, Mark. Hi, Jesse. Mark, you've been doing this for uh, 25 years, I think. I want to ask you, in your career in the charitable sector... Have you ever seen anything like this? No. Tell me what distinguishes this, what makes this different than than any other episode with a charity that you're aware of. First of all, you should appreciate that I gave such a quick answer to your last question. Um, the main thing here <laughs> is just the intense complexity. Um, it's not even the organization itself so much as that there are, I don't even know, I gave up counting when I got to about 15 different organizations, groups, in a number of different countries. And I have been encouraging actually charities to think sometimes that it can be a good idea to have a nonprofit or a for-profit. And maybe I shouldn't be saying that right now because uh, people are worried about that. But there are legitimate reasons sometimes to have a nonprofit or a for-profit. Um, so you might have a hospital that owns a, a Tim Hortons or something, and they put that into a for-profit entity. But in those cases, usually the hospital, for example, would own the entity. It wouldn't be something owned by someone else, right? So it's a bit of a different uh, kettle of fish. Um, But so, yeah, no, there's a place for having separate entities, especially if you're doing international operations or you have different uh, programs and things like that. But uh, the tremendous number of entities and the lack of clarity as to where one entity begins and another one ends 
and websites, um, you know, that have, you know, you can't tell which one of the 10 or 15 entities when they're saying something on the website it relates to. So that's what they call confusion, right? When you have multiple entities, which is perfectly acceptable, and CRA even in some cases will suggest that it makes sense to have a, a second entity uh, because charities are somewhat limited in what they can do. Um, but you do need to make sure that there is clear separation. And that means the public needs to not be confused. Internally, you should not be confused. And if a regulator audited, uh, there should not be confusion either. Now, we has a position on this. The Kilbergers have a position on this. They've been questioned about this at committee and elsewhere. And I'll, 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 I'll present that mm-hmm. uh, point, point of view like as, as fulsomely as I, as I can. Uh, they, they said, uh, yes, we have a lot of different uh, entities. At heart, we're entrepreneurs. And they have said that um, this is just sort of something that came up because they, they, are, they are different. Uh, they, are, they feel constrained by the way that charities are defined and regulated, and they are the champions and pioneers, I think they've said, of this social enterprise model. And they concede that perhaps over the years it's gotten too complicated and they're going to take from this episode that it's time to, to, to sim- simplify things a bit. Um, and I think that that tells a story of uh, progressive and ambitious uh, young philanthropists who, uh, you know, they're, they're getting a necessary check, but all of this came from a desire to just do do this in a very different and innovative way. How does that rationalization or, or you know, argument sit with you? Well, I guess the first thing, and this is just generally I say to people who talk about social entrepreneurship as if it's a new thing, it's been going on for hundreds of years. So I don't consider it to be a new idea that a charity could be involved in something that is like a business activity. So that would be the first thing. Secondly, I don't like the word innovative particularly because it's overused. The basic approach is, um, and I saw a bit of the testimony, and um, I think one of the Kilbergers did say that charities are not allowed to make a profit. Um, And if they said that, then I think they're incorrect um, because charities are in fact allowed to make a profit. There's something called related business, and a charity can run a related business. If you've ever been to a hospital, and you've ever parked in a parking lot next to a hospital in downtown Toronto, and you're paying, you know, $20, $30 for like two hours, um, that's a hugely profitable business they're running. Um, And if a charity wants to do something that is not allowed under the CRA rules, then in most cases, the best approach is just to set up a for-profit that they wholly own. So the charity owns it uh, completely. This is a different model in a way from what I'm understanding and, and of course, all the details of just about every aspect of this uh, situation are not really out there and clear um, at this point, even though we're about a month into it. Um, So based on the tentative information, it sounds like um, that it's not the charity that owns the for-profit, but instead it's uh, uh, maybe two or three people who own it. And uh, so that leads to all sorts of potential uh, complexities and issues that uh, the charity will, will have to uh, deal with. Really, it comes down to, in the end, you know, if they were ever audited by CRA, CRA would take a look at the degree of separation between the entities. Was there clarity on it? Were there any undue benefits that went from the charity to the um, um, to the for-profit. And, and I don't know, uh, because I keep on hearing a different story. I heard more than 50% of the profits was going to the charity. Then I heard it was 80%. Then I heard it's 100%. And of course, um, I mean, the biggest thing that's missing right now is we have no, as best I understand it, there's no financial statements for uh, me to we which is the for-profit arm, uh, whereas there are financial statements for the charity. So that's why I just don't feel comfortable knowing or saying what the answer is as to whether it was inappropriate, the relationship, as it relates to the flows of money between the two entities, because I'm only getting maybe half the picture. I haven't even asked you that question yet, if anything inappropriate was going on. I, I, I take your point. Uh, and I feel your pain. There's a lot of our reporting that came out of the necessary disclosure that we charity has made both uh, in in Canada and the States and and in the UK. Uh, They have to disclose a bunch of information. And we found a lot of stuff in those disclosures that led to revelations. However, when you get into this web of other companies that are privately owned, we have no idea. And it was interesting for me to hear from you that a charity can make profits. I didn't really know that. Conversely, a company makes profits at its own designation. A company can essentially decide at what point 
the revenue as profit based on how much they spend each year. And and they have an incredible amount of uh, powers to spend money on whatever they want. And we don't really see it. You bring up a CRA audit. And this is really the bottom line, Mark. We're doing what we can to get as much financial information on the record and known as possible. Uh, uh, committee was trying to dig into it, but they had this one four-hour chunk and it, it just was pretty uh, unsatisfying in terms of getting clarity on the numbers when the definitions keep moving. Uh, and you, you point this out as well, that you know they, 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 they say that 50% of their profits goes back to the charity. Then they were saying 90%. Now they say 100. I want to know what the bottom line is here. If a Canadian charity, hypothetically, I'm not talking about any specific charity now, if a Canadian charity was doing something wrong and the way that they were doing it wrong involved moving money from one charity to a private company or moving it to a related charity in another country, which then moved it to a private company, what would happen who has the power to demand an audit, not just of the charities, but those private companies? Um, well, I could talk to the charity side because that's what I deal with. Um, and basically, um, if it's a registered charity, the Canada Revenue Agency can conduct an audit. Their approach they use is what is called education first, which means that um, they're not trying to get rid of charities. They're trying to work out, you know, if there's problems, if there's problems, can you fix them? But just so that people understand the process, especially if you have a good litigators defending your charity, in some cases with some very bad charities has taken between 10 to 15 years. Okay. 10 to 15 years. Yes. So. And, and, no. and can the CRA say, we also want to see the books of your for-profit company? I think their powers are limited. Um, and, you know, if it was part of the charity, the there would be no issue there, but it's a separate thing. So, um, you know, if that separate entity doesn't provide the, the information, then I'm not sure that CRA would necessarily have the ability to, to necessarily get it. But, you know, it, it covers many things in many different countries, right? So there's a lot of complexity here, but I would just generally say certainly anything the charity does, CRA can ask questions about. Has a charity ever uh, been found to be up to something really uh, that they shouldn't be doing? And and has the CRA been able to determine that? Oh, yeah, just yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, first of all, the process for getting to be a charity in Canada is much more complicated than in other countries. So in America, it's like a 99% acceptance. In Canada, it's like a 46% acceptance. So first of all, they try to keep out groups that they think are problematic, okay, which is great. The second thing is they, they do actually have much more enforcement than, say, the, the IRS in the US, which is good. So they do have teeth. Oh, they do have teeth. In fact, I would argue of all the regulators in the, the sort of the Western countries, they probably have more ability and teeth and capacity and competence than, than any other regulator that's in the charity area. But you don't think they're well set up to do this? Why? For this particular circumstance, because it, well, it not only is it multi-jurisdictional, it involves a lot of different companies that are, you know, for-profit companies, foreign companies, you know, just a lot of different things. And it's a very bureaucratic system. Like I said, it could take five or 10 or 15 years. And here's the thing. The CRA is not allowed to tell you if they're investigating this group. So if you're okay with finding out in five or 10 or 15 years that this charity has been revoked and then reading a very interesting 100-page letter from CRA, if you want to wait, then I think CRA is the perfect group to, to <laughs> do this. But if you want something more immediate, uh, then I think others need to take a look at it. And I mean, after watching a little bit of the, the testimony, I'm sort of coming to the view that there probably needs to be a public inquiry into this because it's, there are a lot of questions. And it does seem like today we have probably more questions than we did a month ago. We Charity is just one little piece of this. There's really three pieces in my mind. The first piece is we have a volunteer program being set up that is problematic, the CSSG that was going to pay volunteers. It was going to pay them in some cases as little as five or $6 an hour. It was uh, just on so many levels problematic and could undermine the notion, which is vitally important of actually volunteering where you're not getting paid. Paid salaried people is vital for the non uh, the nonprofit and charity sector, but volunteers are also vital, but they're different, <laughs> okay? Then you get into the government decision-making, which I think the NDP and the Conservatives talk so much about, and I find it sometimes you know, quite uh, debilitating to even listen, um, because I don't sometimes think that the politicians who are making a big deal out of the 
this thing are that interested so much in the charity sector or in that they're more interested in some cases in just scoring some points vis-a-vis the liberal government okay Mm -hmm. then you get into um you know the the we charity itself and its own issues if the cra are the ones to look into this it could take 10 to 15 years you call for a public inquiry that would be great maybe it won't happen Mm -hmm. in other cases has law enforcement ever gotten involved Yes, and it's outside my area of expertise because I, I don't really deal with criminal law and, and things like that. But, you know, there are times when law enforcement gets involved. In fact, there are times where law enforcement gets involved with a charity and the CRA doesn't really apparently get involved or it's not clear because, again, it's all secret. But I would also say that my little knowledge of our police forces in Canada, including the RCMP, is they have close to zero capacity to investigate charities. They know nothing really about charities. And um, I've heard it even just from prosecutors who tell me uh, when I when I will talk to them about, you know, certain things that are going on in the charity sector, they say, look, you know, bring us a case where, you know, someone steals something from a charity store or something that we can deal with. But to start, as soon as you start having two or three layers, it's way too complicated for them. Mark, the Kilbergers uh, pleaded with Parliament. They said, you're killing a Canadian charity. And uh, I do note that uh, first corporate donors and partners were fleeing. And then they, uh, which seems to be a pattern, said, well, we're pausing all of our partnerships. And, and I, I, it's hard to tell from that statement if they mean every single corporate partnership, and they have many. They've also stepped away from their entire relationship with the schools. Again, that came after the schools themselves. Many boards said that they were reassessing or ending their relationship with we. We said, well, we're out of schools now. Are they done? What what kind of future do you see for We Charity? Can they survive this? Well, the first thing would be that when uh, there is some sort of issue or controversy that you have to deal with, it's, it's important to deal with it quickly as possible and try to be as transparent and upfront about any potential issues right away. The thought would be that usually the media has a very short attention span of like, you know, 30 minutes and basically within a day or two, it'll move on and things like that. Um, In this case, we're already at, um, you know, uh, about a month um, that this has been sort of floating around and we're not that much further in terms of understanding everything. And there's probably more questions now than there were a month ago. So that's not a good sign. But in terms of the um, the entity, it's doing programs. I can't comment on you know the effectiveness of these programs, but let's assume that some of these programs are effective and uh, helping people. Then I would say that they have 45 million apparently in real estate uh, in Toronto. They're sitting on uh, you know that's I think what was on their T3010s. So they could you know sell some of the real estate, and even if their donations are completely dried up, even if corporate sponsors dried up, they could continue with uh, using the assets they have. You know, but they may be looking at they call them strategic restructurings, right? Like if the organization is going to be wound up, some of the programs would be transferred over to another uh, group, or there could be some sort of merger, or there could be something else. But, you know, it all depends on what decisions they make. I mean, are it, you know, when we talk about building things back better after COVID, um, if it's the exact same people running the organization, in what way is it uh, better or different, right? <laughs> That is your Canada Land. If you liked it, support it. That's how this whole thing works. Go to canadalandshow.com slash join, or if you're on a smartphone right now, just look at the show notes and click the link. You'll get ad-free premium stuff from us for five bucks a month. Go do it. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. We are on Twitter at canadaland. Our website is canadalandshow.com. And if you're interested in everything we've been talking about today, we have tons of more detail, tons of reports by a bunch of reporters who are working on the Wii story. And you can read about all that there. Kasia Mihailovic is our senior producer. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. And if you like Canada Land, please support it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to 
And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.